Good morning, and I want to welcome you this morning that have joined us here in person and online as we've come to worship the Lord on this Easter Sunday morning and give honor and glory and blessing and praise to His holy name. Our Easter text for today is found in the book of Acts, and we're in Acts chapter number 2. I encourage you to open your Bible and follow along with us in Acts chapter number 2, and we want to talk about Jesus is Lord and Christ. Jesus Christ, Jesus is Lord and Christ. This is the preaching of Peter in Acts chapter 2, and we want to look at it together. I hope that today you'll listen closely as God has a word for you. I've chosen a text I don't know that I've ever used on Easter Sunday, but I think it fits absolutely perfectly. And so today I'm asking you not to be distracted. I'm asking you to take a moment and focus and understand that God hath made Jesus Lord and Christ. And he has proven that powerfully in how Jesus lived his life, the death that Jesus died, the resurrection from the dead, and how it is proving that Jesus is the Christ, that he is reigning from heaven. And so today, as we look at it together, we're going to think about those ideas, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and the reign of Jesus. And what are the implications of this for us? The resurrection isn't something that we just think about on Easter and maybe mention at a funeral and set aside for the rest of the church year. The resurrection has to do with how to powerfully live this Christian life. It's resurrection power that's available in your life and my life today that can transform your life. Amen? And that was the Peter, uh, preaching of the Apostle Peter. And so today, I want us to think about it. I want us to think about the preaching of the early church, the emphasis of that preaching centered in God and in the gospel and the work of the Lord Jesus and the hope that it brings and the, the power for living this new Christian life as the Holy Spirit of God comes to dwell in our lives. Too much of today's preaching is all about the center of man and not God being the center of the preaching. And when man is the center of the preaching, it does not have that transformation in your life. You hear sermons on how to do this and how to do that, how to live a life that blesses your life, how to find the best life now, how to find the life you deserve. Thank God I don't have the life I deserve. And so uh, how to get your kids to like you, how to live successfully and victoriously, and five steps to finding the true you, and those kinds of things. They could be titles not for sermons, but titles for self-help books. Key ingredients to personal prosperity is that that is not preaching that changes your life. Early preaching of the church and the apostles was centered in God himself and what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. What did they believe? What did they proclaim? The apostle Paul says, I've determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Amen. Paul said, the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is transformative in your life. 
So today, I want us to think about the certain hope that is fixed and rooted in a very certain reality that the Apostle Peter is preaching to us. We live in a day where we wonder about hope and real hope and life. There are some that think that we don't need a hope in God, that we don't need pray to gods, we don't need to worship, we don't need religion, we don't need all of that. We've outgrown all of that. Steven Pinker in, from Harvard University wrote a best-selling influential book titled The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined, and and a book called Enlightenment Now. And he says, men don't need superstition, prayer, and gods because men are solving world's problems with engineering and science and progress. Hmm. Yuval Noah Harari wrote a book called Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow. In that book, he's talking about that homo deus, meaning humanity is now God, and that he writes, at the dawn of the third millennium, humanity wakes up to an amazing realization. Most people rarely think about it, but in the last few decades, we've managed to rein in famine, plague, and war. Of course, these problems have not been completely solved, but they've been transformed from incomprehensible and uncontrollable forces of nature into manageable challenges. We don't need to pray to any god or saint to rescue us from them. We know quite well what it needs to be done in order to prevent famine, plague, and war, and we usually succeed in doing it. <laughs> How empty does that sound now? That book was written in 2017. But according to Pew Research, people are feeling less secure than ever before in their life. Less secure about their children having a better future than they have. We see global tri tribalism with the fracture and, of uh, societies and the polarization that's taking place politically and people going to the far extremes of the poles and the, the people being left behind, the threats of society are all about us in this pandemic, looking out, seeing all of us. And technology and science will not fix the problem in man's heart. The Apostle Peter knew that. One man who wrote an evaluation of these ideas said, Pinker doesn't have a way of explaining why, for example, there's so much profound discontent, depression, Drug abuse, despair, addiction, loneliness in the most advanced liberal societies. He notes, as we have slowly and surely attained more progress, we've lost something that undergirds all of it. Meaning, cohesion, and a different, deeper kind of happiness than the cessation of our earthly needs. The issue in man is still the issue, and science can't eradicate human evil. It can't eradicate a heart that is separated from God. It can't deal with the issues of business ethics, religious bias and hatred and arrogance and pride and stinginess and dishonesty and corruption and adultery and lying. That sounds like the Ten Commandments. 
And so the preaching of the early church focused on God and it focused on man's sinfulness, but God's holiness and God's provision for our salvation. This early preaching of the church was on the greatness and the glory and the holiness of God and the rebellion and the, the, the helplessness and hopelessness of man under sin and guilt and about the perfection of Jesus Christ and who he is. And his death and burial and resurrection was secured our salvation and about the faithfulness of a holy God that sits on the throne and about life that has meaning and purpose and found in him and that there's hope when you repent and turn and give your allegiance to God. And this was the heart of early preaching. So let's look at it together in Peter's sermon. Notice that he, verse, verse number 22, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up for according to God's deter, determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him ending the pains of death, because it's not possible for him to be held by death. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me, because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me in Hades, nor allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me, and you will fill me with gladness in your presence. Brothers and sisters... I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. And seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus. And we are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he's been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For he, it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Amen. Father, speak to our heart today as we look in your word and we think about Jesus and all that he did for us. Convict us and draw us to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. First of all, let's think about the life of Jesus. Peter's sermon begins with that idea. In verse number 22, he says, fellow Israelites, listen to my words. He says, typical, listen to me. <laughs> listen up. Don't go to sleep. Don't miss this. Listen. And he says, Jesus of Nazareth. First of all, think about the life of Jesus. 
Peter said, Jesus was from Galilee. He lived in a backwater town called Nazareth, and he was a real man, a real human being, born of a woman. We know him. You can know about him, too. He, we know his family. His father on earth was a carpenter, and his mother was named Mary, and he has brothers and sisters, and he has a real family. He was a real human being. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a figment of our imagination. It was Jesus from Nazareth, known as the Nazarene. And this man, Jesus, really lived among us, and you know this very well, but he was no ordinary man. While he was a man of flesh and blood, he was attested by God with miracles and wonders and signs. He says, you know this man, you heard about this man, but God performed miracles and deeds and works in and through his life that only God could have done. And his life itself is a testimony that he is the Messiah, because there's no other man like him. Only God could have done the things that he did. These signs are attesting miracles that point to the fact that Jesus was no ordinary man. In John's Gospel, chapter number 2, we have the first sign, the miracle that Jesus did in the turning of the water to wine at a little town called Cana. In in John's Gospel, chapter 2, verse number 11, Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. Now notice, he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. What was the purpose of these signs? They reveal his glory, that he was no ordinary man, that the glory of God rested on him and his disciples believed in him. In verse number 23, when he performed miracles there in Jerusalem, it says, And while he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name. Why? When they saw the signs he was doing. The signs themselves, the attesting miracles and works that Jesus did, is so that people might believe in him that he indeed was Messiah. And so he, Jesus Christ is working powerfully in these great miracles. John's gospel is centered around these seven miracles of the Lord Jesus. And the gospels are filled with all kinds of testing works and miracles that Jesus performed, turning the water into wine, taking a helpless, hopeless situation and transforming it. Jesus taking something that was water and transforms it, makes it something else. It was done right before their very eyes. And that's only like God could do such a thing. And there was a nobleman that came to Jesus there at Cana, and he says, my, 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 this royal official, he, he says, my son is really sick. Would you come and heal my son? He's desperately ill. And he said, well, uh, he says, uh, uh, would you please come? Because I know if you come, you can heal him. And, and, and Jesus said, you go, go your way. You have what you've asked for. And the man heads back home, and when he does, he's, he encounters some servants from Capernaum, and they said to him, your son's healed. He's better. And he said, what time did that happen? And they said, one o'clock yesterday afternoon. And that was exactly the moment Jesus said, you go. Now, who does that? Who can do such a thing? Not only the healing 
of a nobleman's man, a son. There's the healing of the sick. Do you remember that lame man? You go just inside Jerusalem through the sheep gate, and there's a pool. And in that pool of water, there's a, this for, uh, was a place called Bethesda. And it was the pool of Bethesda, and there was this lame man there. He's there for 38 years, disabled, unable to walk. Jesus said to him, do you want to get well? He said, yeah, I want to get well, but there's nobody to help me. When the, the waters stir, there was an th- idea that the waters would be stirred by an angel, and those, the first one in the pool could get well. <laughs> well, he can't get in the pool. Not. Uh, he said, do you want to get well? And take up your pallet and walk. And the guy stood up and carried his pallet and walked out. <laughs> now, who does that? In that very same chapter, Jesus said, These very works I'm doing testify about me that the Father hath sent me. So he's with his disciples because the towns can't hold him anymore. And 5,000 men are there, plus women and children. It's getting late, and the people are hungry. And he says to his disciples, I think we ought to feed the people. They said, how are we going to do that? I mean, there's an old golden corral here. He said, well, what do you have? I have they searched. They found one little boy's lunch. They had, we got a few little smoked fish and bread. A kid's lunch. Well, have the people sit down, groups of 50, on the green grass. He broke it and he fed the multitude. (laughs) Who does that? I am the bread of life. The I am does that. He sends his disciples out, and they're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. I've been on the Sea of Galilee. When the winds come up, man, that thing blows like crazy. White capping everywhere, little fishing boat. They're out there in the middle of the night, scared to death. Jesus comes high-stepping on the water. Yeah, who does that? They think it's a ghost, and he cries out, Echo! I, me, I am. It's a word for God. He said, don't be afraid. I am. I'm here. It's me. Who does that? He raises Lazarus from the dead. Who does that? And that's why John said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus' life gives testimony that he is a Messiah. Amen? The whole life of Jesus. But Peter moves on to the death of Jesus. Notice what Peter has to say when he says, he says, verse 23, though he, he says, 
you yourselves know these things about him. Then verse 23, though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and to kill him. Let's think about the death of Jesus. He was delivered up by a predetermined plan. Jesus Christ laid down his life willingly for us. Jesus said, when being examined by Pilate, he said, look, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to raise it back up. Jesus, nobody took his life from him. He willingly laid down his life from one point of view. But from another point of view, he was nailed at the hands of wicked and godless men from a human point of view. He says, you delivered him up. You used lawless men at your disposal. You had him arrested. You falsely accused him. You sent him before Pilate to be examined, and he found no problem. He sent him to Herod, and he examined him out of curiosity, and he found no reason to kill him. And he sends him back to Pilate the coward, and Pilate finds no reason to kill him. But you cried out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And you used the hands of Roman soldiers to nail the prince of God. to a tree and you killed him and you're responsible but while you were doing your very worst God was doing his very best for you so from a human point of view the death of Christ was an act of hate an act of violence and an act of injustice but from heaven's perspective God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. From heaven's perspective, that I live by Galatians 2.20 says, I'm crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and listen, 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 and delivered himself, what, up for me. Jesus laid down his life for us. So from heaven's perspective, it's an act of love. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his love for us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's an act of sacrifice. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 says, Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again the third day, according to the scripture. It's an act of love. It was an act of sacrifice. Christ bearing our sins vicariously on the cross, dying the death that we deserved and earned. Jesus taking the full penalty of our sin in himself, but it was also an act of justice. The very holiness and justice of God was satisfied. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to become sin. What on our part that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God was working righteousness and justice in the death of Jesus. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Amen. Thirdly, next notice the resurrection of Jesus in Peter's sermon. But God raised him up, verse 24, ending the pains of death because it's not possible for him to be held by death. God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Can anybody say amen to that? Jesus is risen from the dead. And you know what? The pains of death 
have been dealt with. There is pain and sorrow and death, but we've been freed from the pains, ending the pains of death in verse number 24. Death, where is your victory? Grave, where is your sting? Where is it? Because Christ has pulled it out. He has changed it and removed the fear of death. Those early women that went to the tomb, they had watched Jesus die. Their hearts were broken. Your heart been broken by somebody who died that you loved so dearly. They went out early in the morning thinking that they might go to the gravesite. Somehow they might finish the job of, of, of anointing his body for burial that had to be hastily done. And while they're there, the stone is moved back and they saw an angel of the Lord. And the, Lord, and the angel said to them, why seek ye the, li the living among the dead? He's not here, he's risen. Amen. Jesus Christ is risen from the grave. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, it says, the angel said to the women, don't be afraid because I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen. Come, see the place where he lay. Now go quickly and tell his bro your brothers, his disciples. Don't you love it that the women got the gospel message first? And they preached it. And some didn't even believe. <laughs> Many didn't. But they knew it was true. Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. When I go to Jerusalem and take trips, to people, we go to different grave sites. And we'll go to the tomb of David, maybe. And David's tomb is there in Jerusalem. You can go to the site of David's tomb. You can see the ornate tomb. You can go into the bottom of the tomb area, and you can see the very tomb of King David. When you walk through the cities, you'll see a sign, the tomb of Zechariah the prophet. In Jerusalem, you see tombs of other people in Jerusalem. But when we're on that trip, we go outside of the city in the last day. And on the last day that we're in Jerusalem, we'll go to a place, and there's a rocky cliff. It looks like a skull. Many people think that might be the very place or very much like the place where Jesus was crucified. And just a few paces from that rocky cliff, you go into a garden. And in that garden, there's a tomb. And there you see a tomb with the stone rolled away, and there's a sign over the top of it. He's not here. He is risen. Jesus Christ rose again from the grave. And, and listen, listen, Peter said, and you all know it. And we are witnesses of these things. We saw it with our own eyes. He is risen it's a fulfillment of prophecy. David was our patriarch. David was our father. David was our king. And his tomb is here today. And his body underwent decay when he prophesied and said that, that his, he would not be, his body would not decay. He's not talking about himself. He's talking about one of his descendants, which is the Messiah. And Jesus Christ's body could not be held in the grave because he's king of kings and lord of lords. He is the anointed one that God has sent. He gives testimony and proof to it. And we're all eyewitnesses of this. We're not out of our mind. These are just days after the resurrection. 
And he says, you know these things. We saw him in Jerusalem behind closed doors. And on Sunday night, he appeared to us. We were behind locked doors. And all of a sudden, he showed up and he was risen from the dead. He let us touch him if we wanted. He ate fish in front of us. And a week later, he dealt with Doubting Thomas in the same meeting, in the same place. And he appeared to those on the road to Emmaus, and he appeared to us in Galilee, and he appeared to the shore of Sea of Galilee, and he appeared on the mountaintop when he ascended into heaven. And at one time, over 500 of us saw him, and those witnesses were all in the crowd. Peter could have said, how many of y'all saw him risen from the dead? And over 500 could have said yes. And God has proven that he's no ordinary man. He raised him from the dead. But the resurrection of Jesus has a powerful message. It has meaning, not just for Easter. And the meaning is that we are justified from our sins. He was delivered up, Romans 4.25, for our transgressions and raised for our what? justification. If Christ is still in the grave, you're still in your sins. But Jesus Christ rose again and has saved us. He gives us resurrection life now. He gives us resurrection life now. In Romans chapter number six, do you have your Bible? Look with me. This is really important. Look with me to the book of Romans and chapter number six. In verse number three, or are you unaware that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, yes, he's talking about the picture of baptism, the meaning of baptism. Now, stay with me. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death. We've identified with Jesus in that his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we may walk in the newness of life. For if we've been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly be in the likeness of his resurrection. His resurrection life dwells inside of you powerfully to live a changed new life. You're dead to an old life and you're raised to a brand new life. For we've been united with him in the likeness of death. We will certainly be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know our old self was crucified with him, that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that they may no longer be enslaved to sin. Since a person has died, is freed from sin. Notice verse number 11. So you to consider, reckon, Account yourselves to be dead to sin, but what? Alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let me tell you, my friends, the resurrection, stay with me. The resurrection has power to change your life. And it's a living power inside of you. That's why Paul says that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, 
Anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. With the resurrection of Jesus, it's so transformative that we can live a whole different life. Timothy Keller said, it's not just a hope for the future, but a hope from the future. His kingdom is not fully here now but it is here substantially. It's transformative. And we're strengthened and nourished and renewed by this very idea of resurrection power dwelling inside of us. This is why Paul prays this prayer in the book of Ephesians, chapter number one. Listen with me. Just listen, listen with your ears, listen closely. Ephesians 1 verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the mighty working of his strength. He exercised this power in Christ, how? By raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority and power and dominion and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the age, also in the one to come. Now listen to Paul's argument. He's saying, I'm praying that your eyes would be open and you understand what God's doing in you. That resurrection power dwells in you. So Easter is about your daily walk with Christ. Because Christ lives in you. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Transforming you. Not only is it resurrection life now, it is hope that is real. This is Paul's whole argument in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. We live with hope, real hope, because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, listen to how Paul argues this. He says, listen, if there's no general resurrection, then Christ isn't raised. And if Christ isn't raised then you're still in your sins. And if you're still in your sins, then your preaching is just vain and foolishness. He goes on to argue in chapter 15, verse number 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. And those who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if we put our hope in Christ for this life only, We should be pitied more than anyone. You're a sorry lot if it's not true. But he doesn't stop there. Look at how Paul argues this in verse number 20. He says, But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead. First fruits of those who've fallen asleep. Can somebody say hallelujah? Hallelujah. Amen. During this pandemic, I've done many funerals. 
some of you have lost some of your closest, dearest, most beloved people in your family. And some of you maybe didn't lose them this year, but you've lost them and it's still a pain in your heart and a brokenness. And some of the saddest funerals I've had to do this year because we've had often a person who lived a life, a long, meaningful life, only a handful of people could come because of restrictions. I did one funeral right after I was recovering from COVID for a church family had lost their mother, one of our church members, and I preached the funeral from my living room using an iPad, and it was broadcast in the funeral home to 10 or 12 people. And it all seems meaningless if there's not a resurrection. But the saddest and most difficult thing personally for me was in December, my mother-in-law suffered for who I dearly loved, a prince, princess of a woman. <clears throat> I loved her dearly. She loved me. Somebody once said, behind every successful man is a surprised mother-in-law. And after being in the hospital for a month, she died of COVID. And by grace, we got to be in the room the last day, the last minute, the last moments of her life as she slipped laboring and took her last breath here. But by faith, we believe she took her first breath there. We went outside of the little village where they live to a little cemetery and she was lowered in the ground and dirt placed on the coffin. And it seems all so hopeless and it is hopeless if Jesus Christ isn't risen from the dead. But now, Christ is risen from the dead. And he's first fruits of all of those who have their faith in him. And that's why it matters. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And he laid his right hand on me. And he said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the alpha and the omega. And I was dead, but now I'm alive. And I have the keys of death and Hades. That's my Jesus. And God hath made him Lord and Christ. Amen? Which leads Peter to preach. He's not done. The reign of Jesus. Jesus is not only risen from the dead, but he is ruling and reigning Listen to what he says. Therefore, since he's been exalted to the right hand of God and received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he's poured out. That's what you see in here. What you see happening here on this day of Pentecost, 
That's Jesus ruling, reigning, seated at the right hand of the Father. The work accomplished, received the Holy Spirit, poured it out on his infant church. And he's sitting in heaven and he's ruling from his throne until the Father says time to go. And he will come again. And he's going to rule and reign. He sits on the throne. He's seated on the throne today. He holds this together. And he is sovereign, Lord. And he's ruling until his enemies be made his footstool. And he says, I want you to know that God has made him Lord, Master, Ruler, and Anointed Messiah. There is no one like Jesus. He is the great I Am. Woo! Now, a sermon like that calls for a response, don't you think? Yeah, you can clap. But the response, the response is more than a clap. How will you respond to this message? Well, there was a response the day that Peter preached. In verse 37, it says, When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. The Holy Spirit moved. And Peter and the rest of the apostles, they said to them, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is not this promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, and as many as the Lord God will call. And with many other words he testified and strongly urged them, begged them pleaded with them, be saved from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted that message were baptized. And that day, 3,000 people were added. (laughs) I think this kind of preaching has power, don't you? What's the response? Number one, repent. Turn from yourself and turn to God. Number two, Identify with Jesus by being baptized. Believe and trust in him. Call on his name. The Bible says in Acts 2, verse 21, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will you call out to him? God, save me. Now, I know that word's gone out of vogue. I was saved. Don't, don't say saved. Sounds, well, you know what? I haven't gotten over it. I got saved because I needed saved because I was on my way to hell, and Christ saved me. He changed me. Christianity is not about believing facts. It's about calling on his name and turning to him and say, God, I'm lost. I'm messed up. I'm sinful. God, save me. I believe in you. I trust you. I give my life to you. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the Easter's glorious message for all of us. Amen. Father in heaven, have your way in our hearts and our lives this day. 
May we turn from sin and turn to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of our life. Father, if there's somebody here that doesn't know you, I pray that today, to today, they might turn away from sin and selfishness and foolishness and the lies of this culture. And they might run to you and say, I believe that Jesus Christ is your son, Father. I believe he lived a perfect life. I believe he died my death. I believe that he rose again. And I believe that he is king. And I'm, I want you to be the king and master and lord of my life. And I call on you, God, forgive me, change me, come into me. Lord, I want to know your resurrection power and live a different life. Oh, God, help me. Father, as you hear us as we pray right now, I pray that, God, we wouldn't be focused on anything else but responding to this glorious message. In Jesus' name, amen.